the sharks right now. Get them hype right now. Yeah. You know the ground is up. Yeah. Everybody that trains, you know the game. Yeah. So let's get it. Slap it up, bump it, and roll. Hey. Yeah, that's the way that it go. Yourself in this game, you're feeling the growth. It's time on the map, we put in the work. Believe it ain't easy, I know. But we train for the love of the game, the love of the art. Now slap it up, bump it, let's roll. Let's roll. Let's roll. Welcome to episode 21 of the BJJ Campaign Podcast. My name is Jeff Moon. I'm an A3, blue belt, one strike. This is Phil Kors, A2, <laughs> blue belt, no strikes. This is Jeremy Arell, A3, black belt, two stripes. Hey, Jeremy, thanks for coming on. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, interesting thing I found out after we had met you at the newbie competition was you actually trained with our instructor, John Plyler, mm-hmm. when you guys were kind of starting out. And uh, you just talk a little bit about that. I think that's kind of interesting and awesome. Sure. So 15, 17, 18 years ago, let me think here. Yep, uh, 15-ish years ago. I trained at Alliance Jiu-Jitsu of Charlotte uh, on Monifer Drive, and John Plyler was there at that time. So we, I believe we were white belts together, but I know we were blue belts together, and we got our purple belts right around the same time, I think. We maybe even on the same day. Myself, uh, John Plyler, and Nelson Mercado, I think, were the three oh, wow. first, not first purple belts up from Lewis, but really in that academy, the first... Uh, like graduating class, we were like peer groups, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. That's yeah. really cool. So you knew John whenever he was as bad as we are at Jiu-Jitsu? Uh, I haven't gotten to train with you guys, so <laughs> I, I don't you know. You saw us in there. Yeah, I, but watching you <laughs> is one thing, and experiencing it, it is different. Uh, definitely myself and John and Nelson as well, we've all made growth sense of Blue Belt, I would hope. <laughs> Uh, but uh, stylistically, we're a little bit different. You know, the, the scope of jiu-jitsu has changed a lot in the last 15 years. And so uh, better or worse, I, I'm not going to make those uh, <laughs> make those assumptions. But I definitely got to train with John a lot. We trained a lot when we were white, blue, and purple belts. Absolutely. That's so, so cool. And you guys were just talking a, a minute ago about teaching styles and stuff like that. And, mm-hmm. and we were mentioning how the class schedule changes all the time. As to you know what fits, uh, you know who's there and what the benefit would be schedule-wise and everything. And you were saying it was reflective teaching. Absolutely, reflective teaching is an important piece of growth. Uh, to think that when you set an original schedule for a beginning school, right? How many students do you start with? Let's say in an ideal world that we started with ten. I didn't even start with ten, but let's say my academy starts with ten people, almost like a club. When we have a club atmosphere and the relationship I can have with 10 students that are beginners is different than the needs of an academy at three years, at five years, at 10 years, at 20 years. As your academy grows, the needs of the academy change. And I would hope that as the needs of the academy change, that the schedule would reflect the needs of the student base. And so you have to keep your finger on the pulse of of the school. You have to understand what those needs are and how they're changing. Uh, what are you competing for? How are you training people? How many beginners do you have? What's the ratio of beginners to advanced students? Uh, all of these things are going to have you change your schedule to meet the needs of those students. And so we've gone through, I don't know, probably six or seven different iterations of schedules at the school. And I would assume you know, John's a fantastic instructor as well, that as his school continues to grow, that his schedule is going to change as well. 
Yeah, for sure. It makes sense. It kind of has a little bit in the year and a half or so I've been there. And like you were saying, every time it changes, I'm like, oh, I love this class. You know, <laughs> this one's way better than the last one. So it won't always go that way, right? <laughs> there are some times when, and teaching is like this as well, where I think I have a good idea and then the execution of the idea is different than the planning part of the idea. And yeah. It, that's okay. It's okay to make a change to try to better your students and then go, this didn't work out. Let's back it up. Let's change the schedule again. And you'll, there'll be lots of changes before you, you fit into a comfortable uh, training regimen that uh, meets the needs of your students. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I had just went the last week here and, and looked through your YouTube uh, page. Mm -hmm. Great grappling on YouTube. Really good stuff. I'm not a huge fan of technique videos just because I, you know, kind of just goes in and out. I watch them. I don't remember. If I don't drill it right away, I just don't remember it. Right. Um, but I was watching a lot of your videos. Uh, some that stood out was uh, when you're talking about the importance of concepts. Mm -hmm. Jeff is always telling me to look out for those. Um, people tell me all the time. I just forget, obviously. But, Absolutely. Uh, being new. But especially the, the video you had on the bad credit video mm -hmm. where you're like the big example to me, I think you even said it in the video, is dealing with grips. Mm -hmm. I will like one or two pulls and that grip's there, you know, and I yeah. just try to, you know, I move no on. to move that. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's like that's a glaring, you know, and I know it's wrong, but during training, I just move on from it. And uh, I'm assuming not everybody's seen that video, but I just thought it'd be awesome if you could kind of talk about that a little bit. Um, sure. So let's talk about concepts first, then we'll talk about breaking and fighting second. Concepts are important, but concepts are extremely difficult to teach. We look at our learning and teaching dynamic, and it'll make sense on why that is difficult. No one wants to be a technical fighter. And the funny thing is, that's a compliment we use in our sport. You're so technical. And technical regurgitation is the lowest level of learning. We call that rote memorization. Like, you regurgitate something that I taught to you, but what you find is that very often the way that we learn a technique with a compliant partner in class is radically different than the execution of that technique while rolling. There's a lot of pieces and feel that you just can't teach, you have to experience. And so understanding that, that it's different, how do we teach concepts while also being true to understanding the mechanics of the pieces and teaching techniques? The way that I want you to think of it is, do either of you have children? No. Okay. My daughter comes to me. She draws. She says, Daddy, I drew a puppy. And you look at it and you're like, yeah, right? Like, it doesn't really look like a puppy, but she says it's a puppy and she's trying. And so we're like, good job, you know, right on with that yeah. puppy. And then the next piece, somewhere in like first, second grade, they'll start doing uh, connect the dots. Are you familiar with this uh, concept? Yeah. So your daughter or son will come to you and say, look, I drew a puppy. And you look down and it's connect the dots. And it looks like a dog, but it's boxy, right? And you're like, absolutely. That's And you can tell, if she, even if they hadn't said it was a dog because it's connect the dots, it's, it looks like a dog, right? right? At some point, you have to stop connecting the dots. Otherwise, you're just regurgitating somebody else's version of a dog, mm -hmm. right? Each one of those dots is a technique, right? And it will make a holistic view of each position. So let's say close guard, 
right? This is a cross collar choke. This is a scissor sweep. Here's the pocket, you know, and you start to learn these things as individual pieces. And then as you reach purple, brown, black belt letter level, all of those things kind of blur together. At what point does it stop being a collection of techniques and be a conceptual knowledge of controls, right? So you want to connect the scissor sweep and the cross collar because they're better together than they are individually. Mm -hmm. We acknowledge that at Blue Belt. But those aren't the only two pieces that fit together. It's just an easy example that people can uh, wrap their mind around. And those two dots are next to each other. It's very easy to connect them. But they connect it to other things as well. And so by teaching these individual techniques, you'll make a holistic picture that you can wrap your mind around. Does that make sense? Yeah. For me, when, when does it turn from connecting the dots into art or conceptual understanding. It's different for everyone, right? Uh, another example that I give, have you watched the BJJ puzzle yes. video? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's, an, that's another really example. Good. At what point does the person realize the holistic picture when you're putting together a puzzle? If you didn't get to look at the front of the box, it's going to be different for everyone. And we don't know. So you have to keep just putting dots, keep putting dots. And at some point, they won't need the dots anymore. So for me, that's how I get from technical understanding of jujitsu and techniques individually, mechanics, how it works, to conceptual understanding. Now, grip fighting. How do we deal with grip fighting when you can't break the grip? There are a couple of ways to do that. One, you can get more techniques. This is one technique. It's not the only technique. Frame the elbow, you can roll your head under, you can wrist lock. You can posture, you can move your hips in instead of your shoulders back because they're pulling. All of these things uh, create a collective defense against a grip. The first thing that we do is say, break that grip right now, because you don't know where that could lead. There's going to come a point where your picture is holistic and you understand the concept. You have a good idea of what they're trying to do with that grip, and there are multiple ways to deny them what they're trying to do other than breaking the grip. Yeah. Breaking the grip is important, but if I know that the cross collar is what they're trying to do, I can try and stand up. I can try and block the other arm. I can uh, keep the elbow framed with my elbow on the inside. All of these things can become about denial of the cross collar, but realize that every one of those things that you do that doesn't involve breaking the grip and moving back to a neutral position opens you up to other things, right? If I frame and block the elbow, opens up my back. If I stand up, then I'm opening my uh, my my center of balance for people to get underneath me, single leg axis, so you're playing that. And so there are consequences for these things, but knowing what your partner wants will help you create a holistic defense for that or a conceptual defense. And that's funny because as you're talking about putting the picture together and everything, there's so many times where somebody makes a grip or something and I just... I'm like, I don't know what you're trying to do, but I know I don't like it. And mm -hmm. I don't want, you know, so you try to address it from there, but that's, that's kind of funny. Uh, I, that, that's typical at Blue Belt. What ends up happening is you resist. And so somebody will do something to you and your default response is resistance. Mm -hmm. Resistance buys you time, but nothing else. Countering buys you position. And so if you're resisting, I hope you're resisting long enough to execute a counter. Don't just try to blanket resist. Otherwise, you're going to just get tired. If you get exhausted, why do I get exhausted rolling with this person but not with this person? Resistance, usually. It's awesome. It is awesome. And uh, like the, I did like the, the puzzle video also because you kind of talk about um, 
how you can't learn it all in one day, mm-hmm. no matter how hard we may just sit there and watch videos and try, you know, just, you know, we, we do. learn it we all, tried. and then we just we forget did. We tried eight days straight in an origin immersion <laughs> camp, whenever we were going three times a day, still didn't. You also have to re- remind yourself that jiu-jitsu is unique comparatively to other things because there's a component of perception with it. The way that I explain that, and I'm, I'm big on analogies. I hope you're going to figure this out. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes they're home runs. Sometimes they're not. Uh, how many videos would you need to watch in order to understand? Excuse me. How many videos would you need to watch to be able to proficiently ride a bicycle? Yes. Yeah, there, there's no, like, you can understand the mechanics of how it works, but you absolutely have to get on the bicycle to build the component of perception. That's probably why, like I said, I don't like, I, I'll watch them, obviously, mm-hmm. but like the technique videos, they don't really, I feel like they don't help me right now because most of the time, yeah, I feel like I need to drill it and kind of feel mm-hmm. what I'm doing wrong and where weight needs to be and everything else. So that, absolutely, it's a super good analogy. I like that a lot. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I think about Keep the shit coming. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess. That, yeah. I thought it was just us. No, it's not us. Uh, another cool one, yeah, just going right down, mm-hmm. just notes I was making watching your videos is... You have a video on uh, commitment to jiu-jitsu, mm-hmm. and you know, you said five seconds in that it's not going to be what you think it is, and I was one of the people. I thought the wrong thing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I've been talking on probably for like two months now on, on different episodes about how I don't commit to moves. I get into the guard. That's where I'm comfortable. It's where mm-hmm. I want to be. And I like I know I need to be working on my sweeps, so I kind of like, you know, kind of halfway mm-hmm. go for a scissor sweep and. Shocker, it doesn't work, and I just close back up the guard and start reaching for a collar again, you know? Sure. Um, I thought that was an awesome video. Kind of spoke directly to an issue that I've been working on for a couple months and trying to get through and at the moment. So. It's a developmental issue. Like, I wish I could tell you you're a unique person. Yeah. But <laughs> most people go through that. We, we become emotionally attached to a specific outcome of something. That's one group. Uh, emotional attachment to a desired outcome. When I execute a scissor sweep, I want it to work, right? And the the desire to make it work makes you predictable. It makes it easy to counter you or resist you in a blanket way. That's group number one. Group number two is fear of what happens when you fail. And that can a lot of times be out of anxiety. So when you roll with John, if you, when you get a chance to roll with me, when you roll with Steve, a lot of these experienced black belts when they execute a scissor sweep or whatever sweep it is, I just use scissor because it's a basic that most of the people watching will understand. Right. We execute that without fear of failure or attachment to result. If I execute a scissor sweep against you and you jump over my bottom leg, all right, what are you going to do? Right. Are you going to go to side control on me? I don't care. Right. Are you going to hold me in side control? When was the last time you guys held a black belt in side control? Right. It just the chance. Yeah. Right. Right. Like, uh, side control isn't typically a place that most competitive black belts get held. If it gets stabilized and there's inside pant control, absolutely, it, it can be a nightmare to get out of there, even for myself. But most black belts don't go down with the ship so hard that side control gets stabilized. They'll do another transition that needs to be addressed immediately. And most of the time they get their back taken or mounted and that's where things start to go bad or they get caught in a triangle or an arm bar during the transition out of side control. But getting stuck in side control is at some point going to become not a non issue for you. That's what I, I, I really like that one part of your video where you showed the Napoleon. Yeah. I was like, 
whoa. <laughs> I was like, I've never done that. Helpful. You know, yeah, super helpful. Most people think about blocking the crossface when they're getting crossfaced. Yeah. But then you, you, you can't block a punch that's already happened. Yeah. Right? The same thing with the crossface. You can't block a crossface that has already happened. You shouldn't think about blocking it after it's happened. <laughs> it just yeah. Comes from. No, I mean, that was it was really... It was really good, and I've actually been doing it since I watched that video. I've actually been doing it just to getting people to pass and and doing that, and it works. You know, and you can it's helpful for sure. It really, it really is. It's easier to regain your guard. Yeah, that's awesome. And John has mentioned a similar thing to me. He was talking to me once about he's more confident in the worst positions than mm-hmm. I am in the best positions. Absolutely. It, at black belt, I feel like at, at Brown belt, a lot of times their attacks are as good as black belts. But at black belt, the defenses will very often match the attacks. So it's not unheard of for a really hungry, competitive brown belt to, to get me. Like, is it going to happen? Like, when I say get me, maybe not necessarily submit me, but pass my guard legitimately, legitimately take my back, legitimately get to mount, legitimately lock up a, a, a choke that needs to be addressed, like, now and institute defenses. But then when that happens, very often I'll escape, right? Just just because you put me in a triangle position doesn't necessarily mean I'm gonna have to tap to the triangle. Just because you get my back doesn't mean that you're gonna get a hand into my collar. Really, there are the layers to this screw up, right? (laughs) Right? And often black belts will acknowledge that they have made a mistake earlier and thus address the mistake earlier. The earlier you address a mistake, the more likely you are to get back into the game. Whereas I feel like sometimes with brown belts, they overextend themselves with their attacks. And if a black belt that is equally game, you know, you know, skill level, age type thing, catches the brown belt in that bad position, it's really difficult for that brown belt to get back into the game. And I refer to that as triage. So when I express that to someone, I say, okay, um, do you want to eat a turd sandwich or a turd hoagie? <laughs> right? I'll take the small sandwich. Please. Right. And <laughs> that's the problem that most people have. At purple, white, blue, and purple, people are like, well, I don't want to eat a turd. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, no one wants to eat the turd, right? But, like, the reality is that you, the, the better you get and the more grappling you experience and hopefully the more you – open your horizons of jujitsu, you're going to meet people that are as good as you or better than you. And when that happens, they're going to do good things to you and they're going to set traps and you need to choose the lesser of two evils. And if you don't choose, you say, no, I don't want to eat. That means they get to choose. It's a deferment. Mm-hmm. And if you defer to them, they're going to, they're, you're eating the hoagie because it has the most hurt. <laughs> right? right? And, and best you, analogy. Best yeah, <laughs> <laughs> turn so, hoagie. Turn hoagie. So you, you don't want to have, you don't want to have your opponent make the decisions for you. Now, if they present two bad situations, you want to choose the worst, or excuse me, the lesser of the two bad and sometimes that still means that you're going to get submitted, but it doesn't mean it was the wrong choice. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I love about jiu-jitsu and that is equal to life is that just because you do everything right doesn't mean you win, right? right? I mean, you can do everything right and still lose sometimes. Sometimes, you know, depending on what venue you're competing in, if you stand up and the referee's like 0-0, zero, zero, this guy wins. You're still a loser, yeah. right? I mean, you still own that loss. You entered that competition or whatever venue it is, and like – that's a tough pill to swallow, right? But you didn't do anything wrong. Oh, well, right. Are you, are you doing jiu-jitsu because you want to win? Or are you doing jiu-jitsu because you love jiu-jitsu? 
if you fall in love with winning, at some point, jujitsu is going to cease being fun for you because you're going to get old, you're going to get injured, you're going to get fat. You know, there are a whole bunch of things that can happen to you that are going to make jujitsu winning difficult. Yeah. And if that's what your goal is, you got shelf life. If you just love jujitsu, oh, you tapped me today. Okay, cool. You know, it doesn't. It, that doesn't bother. Yeah. So. No, it does make sense. We've talked about that before, and and um, because Phil Phil competes a lot, I compete. I, I compete every year, mm-hmm. uh, once or twice a year. I, I, I see the value in it because mm-hmm. it makes my jiu-jitsu better, and that's why I do it. Um, uh, but nobody cares if you win or lose. It doesn't matter. As, as long as you're out there, you're winning by competing. You know, you're, mm-hmm. because guess what? Your diet's cleaner. You're, you're in better shape. You've been doing more jiu-jitsu. I mean, that's the benefits of the competition. Not not those stupid medals that you get for it i mean you know it's it's a you know it it sure it means something you know and i've still got those medals you know hanging up in mm-hmm. my closet yeah but but it, it's you're winning just compete is the way i feel i i think that a good grappler will have medals but having medals does not mean you're a good grappler yeah i agree i would agree with that um, so Jeremy, what would you tell back, back in the day, what would you tell impart your knowledge that you have now about your many years in jujitsu? Mm-hmm. What would you tell the younger Jeremy? That's at, hilarious. At Blue Belt? Yes. Uh, I'm currently working on a piece of media myself called jujitsu time machine. Oh, where, really? Yeah. Okay, where nice. I'm uh, asking black belts, uh, if you could tell one thing to white belt you, what would you tell them? Right. Ooh. Just, yeah. Just, oh, yeah. so. I love that question. Uh, calm down, right? I, I had a really big emphasis on winning. I came traditional martial artist, started in uh, Ishinru Karate, did Taekwondo, Jikundo concepts, boxing, kickboxing, wanted to be an MMA fighter. And every role, every round that I did, winning was super important to me. And I, I did a good bit of that in the academy and, you know, and when I would compete, but I think it was detrimental to my uh, advancement because of the first thing I was saying in which I was emotionally attached to a specific outcome, maybe not necessarily with a technique, which I was with every technique I did, but with the holistic outcome of the role, right? The end, okay, I passed the guard twice, I mounted them, next time I need to submit them. Or, okay, they passed my guard, but they didn't submit me. Cool. I mean, these things are important, but in, in the technical aspect and and approaching them intellectually like that is important, but I was way too emotional with everything that I did. Like I took everything personal and when you're being emotional and you have emotional attachment, it clouds your judgment. How did you let go of that? It got beat out of me in Brazil. Yeah. Yeah. So on your, you spent, you spent what, nine months, six and a half months. The first time Uh came home, sold all my belongings. I was planning to move back forever. I met my now wife in that time, but I went back for another nine and a half months. So I was there six and a half, came home seven, went back nine and a half. Wow. That has to be a crazy experience. It was a very crazy experience. At what point in your... I was, I had been a purple belt for two years when I went to Brazil and I had never rolled with a black belt. That's stupid. It's a lot different now than it was back then, guys. In in the Charlotte area, there was Lewis, there was Joe Hurst Mm -hmm. uh, as the two black belts for a long time. Uh, Snake had a school at Team Rock, mm-hmm. who was not a black belt, right? and then um, and then Steve moved into the area a little bit later, 
but that that was it. And so if one of those three guys didn't roll with you, you didn't get to roll with a black belt. Mm. Uh, and so my first day in Brazil was uh, a, a liberating experience, if that's what you want to call it. So 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 it was just they just it was super rough because you had that emotional commitment to each role that it was either it was either get rid of it mm -hmm. or get rid of jujitsu. I wasn't getting rid of it. They took it and smashed it. So my <laughs> I moved to Brazil so that I, I had aspirations of being an MMA fighter and I had stopped training at Alliance Jiu-Jitsu Charlotte, trained with Charles Hannabrink and Rock Hill okay. with combat jiu-jitsu. So it was a, a no-gi style, live resistance rolling, more MMA based, uh, a little bit more leg lock based 10, over 10 years ago. So what I would consider ahead of its time grappling wise. I had put in a video to try out for Ultimate Fighter 2 or 3, the one that was Henderson versus uh, Bisbing. So it was at UK versus US. Mm -hmm. And they had ended up changing the weight classes at the last second after they held the tryouts in England first. And I can make 185, but I'm never making 170. So it was it was announced at 170 and 185, and then they changed it to 155 and 170. And so uh, it was the last time that they were allowing people in without – uh, checking their records, like, how many MMA fights do you have? And there were a couple guys that were like, I got nine fights, and then come to find out they had, like, no fights, and it, it showed, <laughs> right? And then they started checking in on people. I made the decision I didn't want to be an MMA fighter, so I was going to be an ADCC champion because I was a no-gi leg lock guy. Uh, I'm not, mind you. Uh, <laughs> so I, I moved to Brazil, never having rolled with a black belt, but being utterly convinced that I was going to be an ADCC champion and that I needed to just brush up, you know, my game and train with some, uh, I don't want to say better people because my training partners at Charles were very good, but consistent full room training partners. So let's say if I step in a room, uh, in this area back then, there might've been one possibly, or two people that were competitive roles for me in this area, right? right? I'm not saying, like, if I went there to try, travel to Atlanta, there was amazing, but this area was kind of a little bit of a black hole. And it's very difficult to emotionally and physically tax yourself when you're consistently the best person in the room. Mm -hmm. and I, or one of the best people in the room. So I wanted to go somewhere where it was a lot of good people yeah, I did that. <laughs> uh, and I found out that I wasn't nearly as good as I thought I was. So my first round in Brazil was world champion black belt. My second round in Brazil was a seven time world champion black belt. My third round in Brazil was a world champion purple belt. And my fourth round in Brazil was a third degree black belt. I got beat so bad. I felt like I didn't know how to do jujitsu. And over the next few weeks, I made the realization that I was never going to be a world champion. And think about what that did to me. So I was 27. I had sold all my stuff, raised a bunch of money. I had moved to Brazil because I was going to be a world champion or ADCC champion. And then I realized that that was a non-possibility. I watched my dreams die in front of me. It was... It was a rough time. So in that first 10 weeks, I needed to make a decision on what I was going to do with my life now that I wasn't going to be a world champion. 
And the realization that I came to is that losing is something that is thrust upon everyone is losers in one aspect or another of their life. Whether you try to buy a house and they tell you no a couple of times, you ask out a woman and they tell you no, uh, whether uh, you try to get a job and they go with someone else, you get your guard passed, all of these ways that losing is a reality of life. It's not like you did something wrong. You can do everything right and still lose. Sure. Micro losses. But quitting is a choice. There's one person that can make a choice to quit, and that's you. And while I can wrap my head around being a loser as a reality of life, being a quitter is not something that I'm okay with, not for myself and not for the people that I associate with. And so I reevaluated my place in the jiu-jitsu community. Uh, I have a love for jiu-jitsu. I love jiu-jitsu, but being a world champion is no longer in my designator of success in the sport, I guess. There are a lot of ways that you can interact with this sport and interact with the material that don't involve uh, winning a world championship. Wow, that has to, that has to be a... And you stayed, there, you stayed there even knowing this and going through that, that, that iteration and that maturation of kind of your journey <laughs> through it. And you stayed the, the additional... Five and a half months. It would have been really expensive to change my plane ticket. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that really wasn't the factor. The factor was that originally that I'm not the type of person to come home with my tail between my legs. Do you think, though, changing your mentality mm -hmm. and staying there for the next five months helped you progress more or faster oh than had you continued to have... The Poor attitude, you know. It wasn't necessarily poor attitude. Um, I didn't train my, I didn't change the intensity of my training. Okay. I still trained all the time with the best people in the world. I mean, they were the best in the world. Yeah, trying to help. Rafael dos Anjos, the UFC fighter. Yeah, I saw that picture. I trained with, yeah. I trained with him every every day, just about my first trip to Brazil. Wow. Trained with Vitor Belfort. Trained with uh, Braga Neto. He was a seven-time mm -hmm. world champion. Zoro Babel is the one he fought in uh, one. Uh, FC, where he he uh, he's the one that soccer kicked Roger Huerta. Yes, he was my first role ever in Brazil. Uh, Petapano, Petishumbo, mm -hmm. uh, Chibico, a lot of these guys that are just like world world renowned grapplers. And every day I was in there, I was like, "You're gonna beat the brakes off me, but you're gonna have to do it." <laughs> right? And, uh, and there the the reality is, I I improved extremely quickly. Uh, Beating someone up over and over and over again is exhausting, right? Like, um, uh, let's put it this way. So if we roll together casually and I want to submit you, I'll probably submit you four to five times in an eight-minute round. Casually. Just as a blue belt, that's the reality. Uh, if I wanted to, like, smash you, I could probably submit you eight or nine times in an eight-minute round. Now, if I just wanted to prove to myself how amazing I am, right, which never did, uh, I could probably submit you a dozen times. That's exhausting, <laughs> right? So there comes a point where you're like, I'm going to show you in, in Brazil, like, I'm going to show this gringo that I'm better than him. I'm going to smash him. So you submit me 12 times. Okay. And then you're exhausted. Now you got to go with someone else. You got to go with someone else or you sit. 
I didn't like sitting. I don't want to sit. And so I would uh, gauge my gas tank and my practice based on wanting to roll every round with everyone every day. And then there comes a point where you get an idea of what's going on. And it's really hard to do the same thing to someone over and over again over an extended period of time. If I want to, if I roll with you once a month, I can do the same thing to you every time we roll and you're just not going to get enough looks at it to get like perception and see it coming earlier. But I trained 10, 10 times a week, you know, I would train in the morning and at night and then have drill sessions and teach privates. And so I was always engaging the material. And while I'm constantly engaging the material and you're training three times a week and I'm training 10, it's really like the gap closes fairly quickly. And I'm moved towards the top of the food chain. Just, just reality. And Gordo doesn't just hand out black belts. You know what I mean? So um, he obviously saw something in me and, and I'm fortunate with, for that. But there was a lot of hard work that, that went into getting to me to that level too. That's awesome. I mean, I and it's shocking to hear that it was so late in your campaign. Like, mm-hmm. It's shocking to hear you say that, you know, because you very well respected Black Belt in the community. We were very excited that you agreed to come on the show because of the things that you were going to share. But that it really blows my mind that, that at Purple Belt, you had that genesis. You had that that epiphany. And and I just, I think that's, I don't know, I'm still trying to process it. I just think, I think there's an experience. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of people out there that that can benefit from hearing that. So to put it also in perspective, I competed a fair bit at white, blue, and purple. And I hadn't lost in a while when I moved to Brazil. And you would get the idea that, uh, competed a lot. And if you watched my medals, I did, but there weren't a lot of people for me to compete against. When I would go to a tournament, I would sign up for the purple belt division, but I was a purple belt in 2006. So in 2006, how many purple belts were there in this area? Even when I would go to Atlanta for like Naga or Grappler's Quest or some, I don't actually think I ever competed in Grappler's Quest, but I would do the tournaments that were available. Naga was around. IBJJF didn't have a tournament Mm -hmm. on this coast at that time, really. Probably in New York or Florida, but not around here. Everything was small tournaments. And when I would show up and I would register for my division, I would be lucky if there was someone in my division. And how do you get better at jiu-jitsu? You get better by doing it. By competing has a lot of value. And while I presented myself to compete, there weren't a whole lot of people for me to compete with. And then you go to Brazil and that's just not the case. Like there's a random Saturday in Brazil at Gordo's, no special occasion, 26 black belts showed up. Never had rolled with a black belt. And then you show up and most classes had more black belts than all the other belts combined. So there would be five to seven, not black belts and a dozen black belts. You just, how how do you get better? That's how you get better. It's amazing. We we talked about this a little bit before. Like um, I remember specifically talking with Ryan Leggett, who's a black belt now, but he talks about when he was coming up, and you just you didn't see people with that were purple belts when he was a you know white belt blue belt. Absolutely. Um, it was a big deal to me. Yeah. When I started at Alliance, there were 
no purple belts at the school. And there were three blue belts. And then I was in the next group of blue belts to come up and there were still no purple belts. And then we had a purple belt come in from like California or something like that. Comes in, he no technique, just come in, smash everyone and leave. And then once a month he would show up and just smash us all and leave. And we're like, when you see his car pull up, you're like, yes, I'm going to get him today. <laughs> and then uh, it didn't happen. And now you, I, at our academy, we probably have 15 to 20 purple belts here. There were times when I would get in my car to drive to train, and I didn't know if anyone was going to be there to train with me. A large class for us was 10 to 12 people. A large class for us here is 55. Wow. Yeah. On Mondays and Wednesdays, Typically, we have between 40 and 55. In fundamentals? In mixed level class. Okay. So we, we actually split the fundamentals and the mixed level uh, apart from each other. So the, the fundamentals are in this room over here, uh-huh. and it's an abridged curriculum of closed guard, back, or excuse me, closed guard, back, mount, and side control. Gotcha. A little bit of standing technique. In, in, in the main room in the back, it's mixed level, it's everyone. But that's the technique portion is 45 minutes, and then we get two 45-minute uh, rolling classes. So we do eight-minute rounds. We typically get four or five eight-minute rounds per class, and we'll do an hour and a half of that. We get we get a lot of work. I like that. I like the eight-minute uh, rounds too. I, I, I prefer I prefer the longer rounds. I, I think it just gives you more time to be in more positions. So. It comes from your guys' lineage. Oh, does it? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Uh, most of the Hoist Gracie schools are self-defense based uh-huh. and when time is your friend a lot of times that way with the intensity for which you're grappling uh, protect yourself number one which I, I agree with but uh, the longer that you go and the more exhausted they get then all the athleticism starts to bleed out of the person all that's left is the technique whereas when you're training for competition an advantage can decide the match or the referee can decide the match and typically those people prefer shorter time periods think about that polaris is it not polaris um, yeah what would not polaris uh metamoris when it was under galval versus uh Hiron, or was it henner it was one of them and it was a 20 minute match and i think it was him was it him? i i forget i, I, I think it was here i think it was but they um or yeah they the first eight to ten minutes he was really kind of passive, and then as the match started going on, he kind of started turning up the intensity. But Andre, I mean, he's built like a sports car. I mean, he's extremely muscular, and when you have muscle, it takes a lot of oxygen to work through, and he has a very explosive cut-the-corner game, a fantastic grappler. I'm not saying anything bad about Andre, no. but you can see that his body style and his game matches the tournaments and competition that he normally competes in, mm-hmm. whereas... Uh, here on Henner and, and the people from the Gracie side of the family, they usually don't have that more shredded uh, look. Whether not saying anything about workout regimen or anything about uh, steroid use or anything like that. That's not what this is about. But I, their body styles and body composition oftentimes match what they're training for. And it doesn't surprise me that you guys prefer longer rounds. Yeah. No, it was a real pleasure rolling with everyone here. I mean, it and, you know, Phil and I are lucky. We get the chance to go around and train with different people. And, and it's there's so much good jiu-jitsu out there. And just so many people doing it. I've never, I, going anywhere, I've never experienced 
a, a bad role. It's it, it's just always been. It, it amazes me each and every time. Mm-hmm. But but they were you know John Meg all all of them were very kind and really enjoyed role. Thank you for having us on. They all addressed my grips. For sure, hundred so, percent, they did. I did notice that. There's one thing I noticed is mm-hmm. they were pulling my grips off, and I was like, "Yeah, it's probably something in that video." So, probably. <laughs> um, one more uh, uh, question. We were talking the other week about, uh, and I'd just like to hear your opinion because you talk about your curriculum. I don't know how deep you want to get into it, but um, for a white belt starting out, there's you know you have your guard, your side control, your mount back, um, and, and we were talking about learning one or two techniques, moves, submissions, whatever you want to say from each position. What is your kind of thoughts on that? For what level? For beginning? For white belt, just starting out, like if you want to get a base idea of one or two things to do in every position, maybe to help the like anxiety, the freak out, spazziness of uh, beginners kind mm-hmm. of starting out. Can you frame the question in a way that makes it easier for me to answer? <laughs> like, Can you give me a pointed question? So that I can answer. So, what, so whenever, whenever we were talking about it before, mm-hmm. I, I, whenever I was, because I was a spazzy white belt, mm-hmm. you know, hundred percent, and because uh, I was a former wrestler, I was hundred pounds heavier than I am mm-hmm. now, and, uh, and. Uh, Are you saying how would I approach that to like, hey, I, what, what should I work on? Is that what you're asking? Well, that and like I would spaz out whenever, whenever I was mounted or in a bad position, and. Then whenever I learned UPA elbow escape, mm-hmm. I just practiced them. I had something to focus Absolutely. on. Again, it didn't always work, but I at least had something to focus on that I wasn't spazzing out. Are you asking if I think you should have primary and secondary from all the positions, or are you asking me which techniques you should do, or how I approach it as a teacher to build that out? Yes. Okay, there we go. I'm just I yes. just want to make sure that I'm answering the right question. Yes. Here, the white belts, I, 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 at my school, I've, I have a curriculum that encompasses the 10 major positions, what I consider in jiu-jitsu. The 10 major positions, according to Jeremy Orell, are side control, mount, closed guard, back, neon belly, half guard, uh, butterfly, open guard, turtle, and north-south. Okay. My first four years, I paired them in two, uh, two positions per block and each block was two months. We would do, let's use block one as side control of mount. Oftentimes people will tra- uh, transition from side control to mount. That is a progression of technique. But there are also sets of techniques that blend from those two positions. Let's use uh, taking someone's back when they're making the transition from side control to mount on you. Stuff the leg and come out the back. So there are like these connector pieces. And the way that we would do it is we would focus two weeks on side control, two weeks on mount, one day of review, two weeks of side control, two weeks of mount, two days of review. And when I say two days of review, you're like, you're only doing three total days of review in two in two months. That's not the case. Every day we would learn one new technique and we would review the previous three days techniques because we were on an hour time. So it was in 15 minute increments. So let's use cross collar as an example. So. Today's technique is cross collar, and then tomorrow's technique is we cross collar and then we arm bar. The next day's technique is the UPA before they can make the rotation. And then the next day's technique is accounting for them to try to UPA and you move to technical. So that would be four days worth of techniques, but they're all connected and it's called 
uh, stemming. So they all start in the same position, they all start with the same grip, but they all progress off of that. And so every day is not a new concept for everyone because it's starting from the same place and it allows you to kind of retain the previous day's techniques. What it also allows to happen is someone who can't train every day won't miss a technique. Let's say you can't be here on Tuesday, but you were here on Monday. Well, on Wednesday and on Thursday, we're going to be reviewing Tuesday's technique anyway. And you had the infrastructure related around it because it all starts from out with that same grip. Right. Then, so there's review built into every day. And then after uh, every rotation, two weeks, two weeks, a day of review, typically on that single day of review, there's nothing new taught but I will choose what I consider to be the core technique from that two weeks, probably the cross collar or probably the UPA. And we would work through that and I would talk about things that would make it more difficult and a little bit more depth. Then at the end of the two weeks, a lot of times I'll review things from two months ago and then we'll move on to the next series of techniques or next block, which here was close guard and back. And then we would go through. So I, the whole rotation would take about a year. For all the techniques mm -hmm. and then the next time through I would pair them just slightly differently giving a little bit of different techniques and then the third time through I, I changed up the ordering a little bit how I blended them together again so I would teach like 101 102 third year through 201 right and then at a point like in my curriculum I made all of these corrections I got the corrections That's really cool. So that was the question I didn't know I had. I was trying to ask, couldn't ask it. Okay. Yeah, no, it happens. It's okay. <laughs> I was just trying to make sure that I was understanding what you guys wanted. Yeah, yeah, no, sometimes sometimes I, I have a question. No, the, I the answer was way better than our question. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> so here's my curriculum book. I just made this, and you can see that uh, I will go through and I'll cross things out and put things in. And as I'm teaching, I find sometimes techniques don't fit in a place or there's a technique missing or well what about this or there's a finite amount of time and although this is a valuable technique it's not more valuable than the next thing and so I would be continuing over that time reflecting on my lessons to find if there was something new or different that I wanted to teach. After the third year I really realized that there's only so many ways that you can repackage the same material and make it feel new, started to feel stale going to competitions, we're looking at things a little bit differently. And so I changed the way that we're running the curriculum now. We went from two-month blocks, the problem that we were running into. And this was for white belts or for everyone? For everyone. But you got to remember, I was a brand new school, so yeah. it was all white belts. It was oh, me okay. and a blue belt got, and a bunch of white belts. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> uh, the... The issue came into the fact, let's say that you start and you train a lot and you're good. And you've been coming for eight months and you go compete and then somebody gets to side control on you and you don't know how to escape. Why don't you know how to escape? Well, because we haven't had side control block. You came in in block two and side control escapes were in block one and it's not acceptable for you to have been training for eight months and not know how to escape side control or not know how to escape mount or have, have a holistic uh, understanding of that. So we shortened up the blocks to three-week increments. I still believe that those are the 10 major positions, and there is actually a full week of 
omoplatas and a full week of armbar position. I, I view those as quasi positions mm -hmm. that are not just submissions, but also you get to play them as, as positions. And we address that as well. After realizing that I didn't want to go eight months without having somebody to learn side control, we switched it to three-week increments. So now blocks are three weeks at a time, and we go on. Typically, it's a set of attacks, a set of defenses, a blending together with the attacks and defenses, and a blending into the next position that we're going to. For example, next week, we're going to be working turtle finishes. And what I mean by turtle finishes, not submissions from top, how to wrestle someone down from the turtle position when you're on turtle bottom. Granby rolls, shoulder rolls, knee taps, low singles, uh, sit-throughs, cement mixers, all of that happy jazz. Not because I really want to teach turtle, but because I want to teach my students how to bridge out. At the last tournament, I realized that we're having problems with no one is ever bridging away. And a good instructor will emphasize that turning your back to someone in side control is a great way to get choked. But there are legitimate reasons that you would bridge out. And you'll see some of your high-level grapplers will do that. Typically, when you get choked or dominated is because you waited too long to bridge out. For me, the distribution of bellying down in front of someone and bridging out is about 70-30 or 80-20. Most of the time, you should be shrimping, recomposing. When that's not an option, bellying down and knee tapping and all that stuff is really great. 70 to 80% of the time, your opponent should expect that that's what you're going to do. And then the bridge out comes as a, ah, that was, you got me on that one, right? Like I did, I, you should have bellied down, but you bridged out. I got you next time. Now can't bridge out again. When you bridge out again, they're going to take your back. You know, they're going to, they're going to do these things. But as a one-off or uh, an opportunity to remake up space because you've made a, a mistake or to diversify the, the directions in which you can go. If they know for sure you're going to belly down every time, you're going to find that you're going to get guillotined, you're going to get clock choked, all of that every time because they're just waiting for you a lot of times when they pass. Mm -hmm. There needs to be some variety so that they can't overcommit to a place that they know you're going to go, if that makes sense. And I noticed that my students are having trouble with that. But I have to teach the finishes for the bridge out before we do the bridge out. Otherwise, it's just too much content put all together. And while you would look at that and go, oh, he's teaching turtle bottom, that's what this module, I call them modules instead of blocks after they're three weeks. That's what this module is about. It's not, it's about bridging out. It's about side control escapes, but diversifying or splitting up the finishes from the entries can help students obtain that. And objectively, if someone was only here for a week, that would still have value if, if you were learning knee taps it through cement mixers, rampies, and shoulder rolls. Yeah, no, that's really that's a very thoughtful way of, of putting it together. Um, and Jeremy, we're coming to around the end of our time here. Sure. I just want to ask, what question didn't we ask that that, that you feel like we should have? But is there, is there something that you'd like to share? Uh, you know, obviously we'll. We'll post. Uh, thank you for having us here. Great yeah. grappling. We really enjoyed it today. Uh, it's one of the benefits of, of going around and doing this is being able to train in different places. But is there anything that we didn't ask that you feel like uh, sure. you want to share? I feel like a lot of your questions were centered around how to interact with jiu-jitsu and improve as a student. I think that most students can wrap their mind around the things that they need to do in class. I don't think I said anything outside the box. 
I think I'm using sound teaching principles that are used in a lot of other sports, a lot of other educational endeavors. And when I say them, you're like, yeah, 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 that makes sense. And then you just kind of go uh, about your, your business. And part of that is because you're asking me a lot about the teacher side, but not about the student side. One of the things that people can do that they very rarely do is off the mat engagement with jiu-jitsu. Typically, most people will do that through watching videos. And we talked about the bicycle riding as a difficult way to learn how to do something through videos. Once you reach a certain level, just seeing the pathway, you have enough perception and practice that you can put together a lot of those things. Two really important things that can help most people that are at the white belt and blue belt level engage their jiu-jitsu when they're not in the mat. First one is you need to be taking notes. The process of taking notes is a, a fundamental way for which you can review. And we know that immediate review, when you step off the mat, right? Immediately step off the mat. Hey man, what are you doing for it? Don't talk to me. Don't talk to me for a second. I wanna to talk to you in five minutes. I need to take these notes. That immediate review where you're making notes, uh, um, what, hap what happened in class, the date, what you did, the position, the, the move, who your training partner was, how you tried it in rolling and how it went rolling, and what you're gonna try and do next time differently so that it improves. Nobody does that. I don't know why nobody does that, but that is an important aspect of jujitsu. Not because you're writing it down, but the mental visualization that you will go through in the note-taking process is extremely powerful. We're, we're very big into taking notes and actually our premier sponsor yep. is my BJJ notes. There we go, so, I love it, I yeah. love it. And uh, number- Your, your points before you move on though, I've never, written down why I screwed it up and what I'm going to do to try to fix it. Yeah, so I, I haven't. I haven't. Done I really either. like that. Then, so that's immediate review. You should revisit that two to three days later. You should go back and reread your notes. We know from like when you get in an accident or have a trauma that it's very difficult to recall what happened. And then you go like, this is what happened. And then you watch the video and that's not what happened at yeah. all. Like your mind gets clouded by the chaos of combat. That's normal in all forms of trauma. The fog of war. The fog of war. Exactly. Exactly. The review of the note. That's why it has to be immediate yeah. after you're done. Right. Yeah. Reviewing it two or three day, days later will increase your retention of technical knowledge greatly. Very, very important. And very, very few people will go back and reread a note. On a, on a scheduled basis. Oh, it's two days. I need to read two days notes ago to know what I was thinking then. And then it'll bring it fresh to your mind so that you can make those corrections on the things that you said were wrong. And then guess what? After training, you're going to include that in your notes. I tried to do this. This worked. This didn't work. This was the training partner. They were ready for this. All of those things. Important. So immediate review and then review after a couple of days. And the, the literature supports the increase in, in retention based on that. For sure, yeah. And then number two is mind mapping what you want to do. There's this thing called Hicks Law in motor learning where your response timing is directly proportional to the amount of, uh, amount of uh, options that you have. So if you have a button and you have a light, and I say every time that the light flashes, you press this button right? 
it's really easy. You just look for the flash, the movement, you're like, bang, and you push it. And you'll see that sometimes some white belts and blue belts become very successful in competition because they have a narrow technique selection, and that's the only option. They hit it with maximum aggression, maximum force, and it, it, there, there's success there because if there's failure, then they don't know what else to do, mm -hmm. right? Well, when we start going, uh, okay, when the light flashes, you need to press the green button, right? And if there's like three or four buttons uh, on the ground or three or four lights, like it goes up exponentially. So when you mind map, what I want to see is I want you to write down what your primary and secondary attacks are from your, your primary positions. And then I want you to write down your ideal position. What's your best position? Uh, I like half guard. I love half guard too. Now, right? What's your best pass? Uh, I'm going to say uh, the knee over. Knee over. Uh, knee cut. Yeah. Okay. Why is that a good pass for you? I think it's because it's one that I took a private lesson sure. on. Okay. Objectively, as an instructor, why would I choose that pass for you? I don't know. When it fails, where do you end? Back in guard. When it goes really wrong for you, where does it end? Oh, Somebody's got my back. Yeah. If you knee cut and you get swept, oh, yeah. you come, they come up yeah. into your best position. Oh. Right? And so when you're mind mapping, those are things that you should be going. You're like, what's my best position? And when you choose the techniques that surround it, they should funnel to your best position. And then when somebody's like, I'm going to sweep you, and you're like, oh, you're going to come up into my best position? That's great. And so when you mind map, it should really try to connect things like that for you. And as an instructor, when I see you flailing, right, and I'm like, is that, are you trying to do what's written on your mind map, right? And I'm like, <laughs> why, are, why are you doing that, right, right? Like, you, a lot it of people, a lot. Right? <laughs> it, it will happen less and less as you become more comfortable with techniques. But it's also okay to go, this doesn't fit here. Because I'll have people that'll go, uh, let's use... Let's use half guard as an example because it's a, it's an easy one. I like it and you like it. Yeah. So let's use half guard. You're like, half guard's my best, right? And you're like, and, and Toriando is really great for me. I just throw the legs to the side, right? And then, but when Toriando goes bad, a lot of times they leg pummel. A lot of times they belly down. A lot of times they'll ankle pick you or low single you. And those don't end in good positions for you. And as an instructor, I can look at that and go, the problem isn't. The pass, Toriando's great. The problem is that it doesn't match the rest of the game that you're playing. And so Toriando, fantastic pass. If you were a head and arm, anaconda, back-taking fool, be like, let's Toriando him every time. But that's not, like, it, it needs to match. Like, that's just... Yeah, no, I, I never thought of it that way. So, so uh, engagement of technique while off the mat includes uh, written review and going back and reading the review. And... Make sure that you make a mind map and that you're trying to execute the movements that are on your mind map and then also be reflective in your learning in the fact that if a move isn't working for you, I don't want you to focus on the symptom of why it's not working for you. I want you to I want you to find the root problem of why it's not working for you. That's so cool. On the drive here, I didn't go to the class last night and we're talking about um, what they did and they did the arm bar. 
from the closed guard when the person's extended reaching and you throw your leg over. And I'm like, yeah, every time I see that in class, I'm like, I'm going to start working on that arm bar because it happens to me all the time. Four days later, I forgot about it because I don't go back and review the notes. That's fantastic. Absolutely. That is fantastic. So, uh, Jeremy, tell tell uh, our audience how they can get a hold of you. Uh, you know, first off, for the audience, go check out his videos. They're phenomenal, and he's got way more than I even realized uh, after talking to him. But yeah, I didn't even get to talk about all the ones because Ryan Leggett, again, was talking to me about the same thing. I think I want to say last Friday about submissions being a gift. I'll post mm-hmm. that video on our page for people to watch because yeah. that video it's is a awesome. Really good, really good video. But tell, tell them how yeah. they can get a hold of you. You know, if they're interested in jujitsu or sure, want to view your if, content. Uh, first of all, and you guys learn this today. There's there's no drop in fee here. If you want to come train at Greek Grappling and you're in the area, absolutely come train. Uh, it would be a pleasure to have you and a pleasure to roll. I also. Uh, if you need to get a hold of me, you can email me at Jeremy at Great Grappling, or my school is Great Grappling Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. If you type in Great Grappling, Great Grappling BJJ, I'll come up. My YouTube channel is YouTube backslash or YouTube.com backslash GGBJJ, and that just stands for Great Grappling Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I'm pretty on top of that stuff. I care about that. So if you have any questions about techniques or videos, don't hesitate to send me a question about that. I'm also starting a new web series called Ask the Professor. I think there are 10 or a dozen of them out right now. Or if you have a question about jujitsu, not necessarily about techniques or anything like that, but techniques would be fine too. But etiquette, uh, how how to go about addressing something, uh, how old is too old for jujitsu, when should I start my kids in jujitsu, anything that... goes around jujitsu, you can email your questions to ask, ask the professor at greatgrappling.com. And I just put them in a uh, list format and then we rip them all out at the same time and I release them on Wednesdays. So that's awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the show and Phil, tell our fans how they can support. Do we have fans? I don't There's a couple of them. Yeah. Uh, Instagram is the big one, getting more followers all the time. That's got, right. some, got a picture up uh, of Jeff Rowland today. And uh, so you guys can go like that. Uh, bjjcampaignpodcast.com and on Facebook and any topics you want us to talk about always include those absolutely and uh, if you're not doing something to be better each and every day get out there and do it Phil and I choose jujitsu. we hope you do too I'm about to feed him to the sharks right now get him right now yeah you know the ground is up yeah everybody that trains you know the game yeah so let's get it. Uh, Slap it up, bump it and roll. Hey. Yeah, that's the way that it go. Right. Ain't no better way to better yourself in this game. You're feeling the growth. It's time on the map. We put in the work. Believe it ain't easy, I know. But we train for the love of the game, the love of the art. Now slap it up, bump it, let's roll. Let's roll. Let's roll. Let's roll. Let's roll.